Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 148, and there are negotiations afoot between Dingana and the Fortrekkers at the behest of Captain Henry Jovis, who led the small detachment of British troops based at Port Natal. Their role was to stabilize the Natal region after a year of extreme violence. The Fortrekkers and the Amazulu King Dingana were fighting tooth and nail. Jervis, as you heard, was one of the characters in our story that crop up here and there, and are able to act as neutral arbitrators between different factions. Gambusha, the trusted Ngeku, sent by Dingana, had arrived at the British camp on the 23rd of February 1839 and said that the Amazulu were on the brink of ruin and would accept any terms that Jervis would propose. Gambusha also asked for the British to consider allying themselves with the Amazulu to oppose the Voortrekker expansion. Dingana wanted British protection. Jervis could not do this, saying that his role was to act as a go-between he couldn't take sides. Gambusha took that message back to the Zulu king. On the 23rd of March, two Ngeku called Gikwana and Gungwana returned to Port Natal with 300 of the Boer horses they had captured in the year of fighting as a sign of good faith. Fuertrekker leader Andris Pretorius then arrived, as you heard last episode, calling himself the Grand Commandant of the Right Worshipful, the Representative Assembly of the South African Society at Natal. Had business cards been a thing back in 1839, that title wouldn't have fitted on one side. Nevertheless, peace talks were now underway. Eventually, the terms were agreed that Dingana would return all the muskets, the horses, the sheep, and the 19,300 cattle he had taken from the trekkers, and then allow them to live unmolested south of the Tugela River. In turn, the Boers would assist the Zulus should they come under attack. It was also agreed that from now on all Amazulu emissaries who crossed the Tugela River would carry a white flag indicating who they were, and that the Amazulu found without this pass would be shot on sight. Pretorius demanded that Dingana should send a messenger directly to him in Peter Maritzburg when they were ready to hand over the cattle and other goods the British were to be left out of future meetings. Pretorius held up his scarred right hand where the Zulu warrior had wounded him during the Battle of Blood River, saying that as far as he was concerned, this was the last attempt at peace. However, the Fortrecker leader had one more demand. He insisted that the Amazulu king should order his unmarried warriors to Okutunga to marry and sew on the head rings of married men. That would force him to settle down and raise a family. This was a clever ploy by Pretorius and the Trekkers and showed how well he understood the Amazulu by now that marrying off the hot-blooded young men would domesticate them, taming Dingana's military potential. Then Neko took note and headed back to Dingana once more with this new list of demands. The Amazulu king had based his new great place far to the north and was moving most of his people across the Pongola River, intent on carving out a new kingdom. This kind of thing was not new. Remember Mzilikatsi of the Amandibeli had marched all the way to where Pretoria is today from where Freyheit is, then to the Mariko River Valley. Soshangani Kazukodi had also headed north during the time of Zwide of the Ndwandwe, setting up his home at Gaza near Deligoa Bay. And then there was Zwangindaba Kazuguda's Jeli Kingdom, also around that bay. So a movement of a people was not novel. It had been going on for generations. The problem for Dingana is that he was now trying to carve out his new territory that was in the name of the Swazi king Sobuza I. And the reason why it was a problem was that the Amaswazi could fight like the Amazulu. And yet, 
Dingana was also using Pretorius's final demand as part of his political strategy because when men married, they would have to be given land for their homesteads. By occupying vast tracts of Amaswazi land, Dingana would also be reinforcing his own political power, colonizing new vistas for the Amazulu. There was another reason why Dingana was focusing on the Amaswazi people, a people whom the Amazulu looked down on. Attacking them would be part of a Islambo, a washing of the spears, a purification ceremony bathed in blood marking the end of a period of mourning set off by the humiliation of being defeated by the Boers. This washing of the spears would mean the evil spirits that caused the defeat, the Mnyama, the evil influence, would be pushed away into the territory of the folk. Shaka had tried to do the same thing when he sent his Islambo impi, the Melan Amabuto, to the Amampondo territory 11 years earlier in May 1828. That was to mark the end of the mourning period after his mother Nandi's death. The Amaswazi were now facing an Amazulu invasion which began in the winter of 1839, a far more threatening action than any of the previous raids. This was an attack of colonial occupation by four Amabutu, the Umbelebele, the Inumdayana, the Mkuluchani and the Imvoko. Kluana Kainkaingalele led these regiments, a man from one of the most powerful chiefly houses, the Butulezi people. The place they were aiming at was across the Pongolo, close to the source of the Inguavuma River in the southwest of modern Eswatini, setting up the new great place on the Ingutumeni Ridge, and they planned to call the new center Imbelebeleni. The Swazi king Sabuza was acutely aware of what was going on and had his own political plans in place. He had sent an embassy to try and seal alliances with the Boers after he heard about Blood River. There were initial discussions. Nothing was concluded but Sabuza realized that the Boers were useful possible allies. Dingana's invasion, though, was too swift. Sabuza had not managed to complete his diplomatic moves before this invasion. In the battles between the Amaswazi and Amazulu over the years, Sabuza had retreated into the mountains in a similar tactic deployed by the Basutu, but this time he was going to use the Amazulu's own tactics. The problem was, Sabuza was extremely sick, but he hid this from his people, when he ordered a total mobilization of the troops. He wanted to catch the Amazulu by surprise and drive them out. He knew that Tingana was in a weakened position, perhaps one more severe defeat and then the Amaswazi would be left alone by these impis from the south. Then, because this is real history, Sabuza died suddenly and shortly after he gave the mobilization order. This information was kept from the Amaswazi as the power shifted to a woman called Rojiba Simalani. It was her 13-year-old son, Mswati II, who was now king, but too young to call the shots. So she took charge of the nation as they faced the most significant confrontation. The military commander of the coming battle was Mgaye Fakudzi, highly experienced in the decades of clashes with the Amazulu raiders. He had kept a close eye on Kluwana and Kringalele and the four regiments marching towards his land. Fakudzi had the advantage of local knowledge. He was going to exploit the geography and decided to confront the Amazulu near the modern town of Latakuru in the Lubuya River Valley. This is a dramatically beautiful part of Eswatini, an antithetical backdrop to the coming bloodletting. Sabuza had trained his own warriors, sharpening their techniques. They had copied the systems of the people further south, the Kwabe, the Mtetwa, the Ndwanwe, the Amazulu. They had named their detachments the Emabutfo, the Kiswati version of the Amabuto, regiments of men of the same age drawn from across the kingdom. They had converted to the Amazulu social system where these regiments were loyal to the king first, not their local leaders. 
They lived in royal barracks, huge villages of thatched huts, and these Imajaha warriors had been deployed against external threats. They were doctored by the traditional healers in the same way as the Amazulu, believing that chants and medicines would give them strength and courage and blind their enemies. Their spears were similarly designed. The throwing spear, four feet long with a thin tapering blade of iron, and two types of stabbing spear. One had a heavy broad iron blade, a bit like a Roman sword, and the other featured a long slimmer design, more like a rapier than a chopping tool. But they also loved to use another weapon that the Amazulu did not use, a battle axe. They learned to appreciate its unique advantages from the Bapedi people to the west and the Basutu, who also appreciated its skull-busting charms. And to finish off victims, they deployed the Nobkeri, so beloved of the Amazulu, and used to finish off Pit Retief and his men. Unlike the Amazulu, however, the Amaswazi Emajaha wielded an oval war shield, smaller than the Amazulu's. The Emajaha also dressed for the occasion of battle, tying cow tails to their ankles, their necks and around their arms. Different animal skins were thrown over their shoulders, and on their heads they wore black ostrich feathers, as well as feathers of the male widow bird. It's famous for its stunning plumage. Its tail is half a meter long, black, with orange, red and white epaulets. Southern Africans know this bird well, often sitting on fences alongside the highways. A male widow bird will have up to five breeding females in its territory and will defend these against other males who enter their land. So it was symbolic for the Amaswazi warriors to don their widow bird's feathers in the fight against their invaders. One of the curious objects was the hollow bone on a necklace which the Amajaha would sound as they ran into battle, followed by a booming roar, which was the sound of hundreds of men smacking their shields against their legs. This was designed to cast fear into the hearts of their opponents. The Amazulu were going to face the same head and two horns strategy, with the younger Amaswazi warriors on the left and right horn regiments, the older men in the centre. Fakudzi had a great deal of time to plan his approach in the deep valleys and looming mountains around southwest Eswatini. But first, he made his own mistake by splitting his force, sending the majority as the horns to take advantage of the mountains. He'd lead them as they swept down into the Lubuya River Valley, trapping the Amazulu, who'd be mauled by the centre regiment. It didn't quite work like that at first. The battle began when the Amaswazi centre engaged early, and the Amazulu Amabuto killed many in this gigantic struggle, until Mgaya Fakudzi suddenly descended with the two horned sections. The Amazulu were forced to retreat with heavy casualties. Oral traditions tell of how the great Amazulu warrior Dambuza Lukele fought to the death rather than turn and run, but despite his exertions and heroics, the Zulu were routed. Tingana wasn't finished. He sent a number of other Amabuta to take on the Amaswazi, the Udlambedlu, the Izanyozi, the Indabankulu, all in vain. The Amaswazi were too quick, too well-trained, too motivated, and he was forced to give up his plans to colonize Mbelebeleni. Imagine the effect on Dingana. He had been defeated by the Boers and forced to hand over land to them. He had been defeated by the Amaswazi in his attempts at wresting territory from a people he didn't regard as equal. It was humiliating. While all of this was going on, Dingana's Nneku Gambusha had arrived at Fort Victoria in Port Natal with the news that all the muskets taken from the dead Boers and their cattle had been collected. This enraged Pretorius who had explicitly told the messengers they should approach him in Peter Maritzburg, as he was the commander of the land around Natal. Tingana's message to Captain Jervis 
was that the Amazulu king wanted the British to be present when all these goods were handed to the Boers. Pretorius disagreed. The Voortrekkers, he said, were the rulers of Natal. Anything handed over would be directly to them, no British allowed. Gambusha had also entered Natal without a white flag, further enraging the Voortrekker leader. What happened next was what Jervis had been trying to avoid. Pretorius demanded that Gambusha open direct negotiations with him. In late May 1839, William Cowie and a small party of Boers set off to visit Dingane at his new Mgunglovu near Pongolo. Cowie was a Scot who had married a Voortrekker woman and had been appointed the felt cornet of Port Natal. His wife, Magdalena Josina Lass, was the daughter of Andres Martinez Lass and Sarah Salamina Farmak. The Lass family had accompanied Voortrekker Jacobus Johannes Ace and his son Peter from the Cape Colony to Natal in 1837. Cowie had fought alongside the Boers at Blood River. William was also going to give his name to Cowie's Hill, but how that happened is for a future episode. What you'll also hear is how Cowie was going to switch sides, spying on the Boers for the British in the upcoming war over Natal, and his Boer wife helping him in that endeavour too. Both Mr. and Mrs. Cowie were interesting characters, no question about it. But right now, William Cowie was meeting with Dingana, the date, 27th of May, 1839. On the way to the meeting, Cowie had been well received by the various Indunas, who all indicated they were tired of this war, and they were rejoicing it had ended. Dingana was in a strange mood when Cowie approached. The Zulu king had a red cloth thrown around his shoulders, holding a spyglass in his hand. And yet, all went well. Dingana confirmed the cattle and other goods were being collected, and so Cowie returned to Natal. It was barely ten days later that two Izinduna arrived in Pietermaritzburg at Pretorius's camp. We don't know who they were, but apparently they were shivering in fear because the other two Izinduna who were supposed to conduct the next round of talks, Nlela and Nzobu, would not appear. These two, as you'll know by now, had led many of the bloody attacks on the foretrekkers on the Bushman's River the year before. They were being hunted by the Boers in conjunction with these raids. They were too afraid to go to Peter Mansburg themselves. So it was then that the two stand-ins handed over 1,300 head of cattle, 400 sheep, 52 muskets, and 43 saddles. Pretorius couldn't resist giving the two Isinduna a tongue lashing, telling them they had killed women and children, and now he upped his demands. The Boers now wanted a ton of ivory as part of the payment of cattle still owing. The quivering Isinduna said that the Amazulu were actually out hunting elephants at that very moment. Then Pretorius fixed the number of cattle still outstanding at 19,300. The two unnamed Zinduna left, and later the ivory was duly delivered. But the cattle were not. As far as Dingana was concerned, he'd bought time by sending the ivory. This was an embarrassment. He'd been forced to Ukutela to submit to the Boers' power. These tributes, however, were part of the king's attempt to buy time while he tried to defeat Damaswazi. He didn't trust the Boers. They were a land-hungry people, he had told his Zingneku. They would stop at nothing. They wanted everything. The Boers were not exactly busy with that plan. They too had tired of the trekking, wanting to settle down on their farms in Natal, sowing their crops for next season. But Dingana thought this was only temporary. The British, at the same time, were almost useless. Dingana had seen how they seemed to crouch in the port behind their little Fort Victoria while the Boers rode around across the landscape like emperors. While these matters festered, the English administration and the Cape Colony was going through another change. 
There was a new Secretary of State for War and Colonies in England who was the Marquis of Normanby, who had replaced Lord Glenelg, and the Marquis of Normanby now turned his attention to this little Southern African conundrum. The Marquis was an oddity and proceeded to announce he was concerned about what he called the calamities to which the natives of Southern Africa have been exposed by the unprovoked and unjustifiable eruption into their country. By that he meant the footwreckers. He initially supported the idea of the garrison at Port Natal, all the more so as he received updates on the negotiations started by Captain Jervis. Given that all was going well, Normanby then changed his mind, as bureaucrats sometimes can do, saying that because all was quiet, it was his intention to relinquish the post at the port at the earliest opportunity. Waste of time and money! It was Mpandi Senzanga Kona who was going to change that equation. Dingana's half-brother had been in hiding after another attempt on his life by the capricious Amazulu king, and in September 1839 he fled across the Tugela River with 17,000 people and 25,000 head of cattle. Mpandi's defection to the British, or the Boers, or both, he wasn't sure at this point, further eroded Dingana's power. Already stretched to the north trying to defeat the Amaswazi, he now sent warriors over the Tugela River into Natal, reaching the Mvoti River. That's not far from the port, but Dingana's MP turned back. They didn't want to fight the British and start a third front in their war with the Amaswazi and the Boers, merely to get hold of Mpande. It's believed by Zulu oral historians that Dingana may have been able to survive as king had Mpande not taken off. But already the royal house was rethinking Dingana's role. Like Shaka, he'd brought constant war to the people after promising to be more peaceful. They hadn't forgotten those promises. A dynastic conflict was going to bring a civil war to the Amazulu, and Mpande's action precipitated what happened next. He has been demonized for this, for collaborating with the Boers, but he was no fool. Dingana was trying to have him killed. Was he supposed to just sit around and have his throat cut in a kind of social suicide pact with the royal family? We didn't like him anyway. Mpande's diplomatic skills far surpassed most of those around him. He'd survived when all his brothers were killed after Dingana bumped off Shaka. He was seen as a rotund, obese, unprepossessing man, born of Senzangakona and Songia, the Zulu Nkosi's ninth wife. He'd been sent off to live amongst the Tele people to cement relations with the Zulu in the early years of the 19th century, growing up at Kwa Klikazi, the main homestead of Dibantlela, who was the chief of the Tele. In 1819, he was sent to join the Umgumanka Ubutu, which was part of the Kwabe chiefdom, just south of where the town of Ishowe is today. Later, when Dingana killed Shaka, he was left out of the plot, and then he wasn't killed. It's not entirely clear why, as you know, besides the fact that he was deemed to be no threat. He was also not fully accepted as a member of the royal house because his mother, Sungia, had slipped into his father's hut during the night when Senzanga Kona was supposed to be doctored and Mpandi was conceived on that night. This meant he was too low-ranking, never in contention for the crown. Furthermore, said Amazulu Izabongi, he was Isitutakazana, a simpleton, and Mpandi spent quite a bit of time fostering that perception out of self-preservation. Dingana's powerful Induna and Lela Kasumpiti liked Mpandi as well, and kept reminding Dingana at times, because Mpandi had fathered many sons by the late 1830s, his line would guarantee the future of the Zulu people because Dingana, as you know, had no children. He'd forced his wives and concubines to kill any babies or to endure abortions he was so fearful of being bumped off himself. 
Sompandi had maintained a low profile, living for a time at Ilambongwenya Ikanda on the Matukulu River. Another Mpandi's allies was that remarkable woman Mkabai, Shaka's aunt, a matronly figure by now and one we'd met many times on our journey. She was the one who told him to flee from Zululand. Another ally was Mapita Kasojiisa of the Mantlakazi clan, a man of the royal family. Mpandi fled because it was now time to leave. Tingana was lashing out like Shaka before him, and like Shaka, the lashing always started with family. Mpandi first put out word for people between the Mtlatus and Tugela rivers to join him in the exodus. Quite a few of Dingana's adherents then followed him into Natal. So, these 17,000 people and their 35,000 cattle made it across the Tugela and hunkered down near the Tungat River, 35 kilometers from Port Natal. From the first moment that he left, he was planning to return, and part of his plan included the Boers, and another part of his master plan was to foment a civil war. The man who spent his whole life camouflaging his ambition, hiding his light under a bushel, was going to loom very large indeed, and not just because he would eventually become so fat that he'd have to be pushed around in a cart. First was a visit to the Boer Volksrad, proceeding on foot from the Mvoti to Peter Maransburg with his belongings carried alongside on a wagon. With him were men of the royal family, Longazala Kanonlela, the man who'd fought with them against the British traders at the Battle of Tugela. He arrived in Peter Maransburg on the 15th of October, 1839, and asked the Volksrad to allow him to settle between the Mvoti River and the Mthali River, where he'd lived before with the Tlele people. Mpandi promised he'd be peaceful. Many members of the Volksrad were deeply suspicious. Who was this portly Amazulu man, and what did he really want? They believed he was the point man for another Amazulu attack, there under false pretenses. Then he returned to the Mvoti to refine his strategy. Back in Port Natal, Captain Jervis got to hear about Mpandi's visit to Peter Maritzburg and was concerned that the peace he'd managed to negotiate between Dingana and the Boers was in danger. He warned Sir George Napier, the Cape Governor. That wasn't going to help, as you'll hear in a moment. On the 21st of October, a Boer delegation of 28 men rode off under the command of the elderly F. Ruas from Mpandi's new headquarters. These men were extremely nervous, hoping their fate was not the same as Petrotif. But Mpandi received them cordially, entertained them, and on the 27th of October, sitting in a tent that the Boers had erected, they signed an agreement. Mpandi was officially named as Reigning Prince of the Emigrant Zulus, and the two parties agreed to a joint attack on Dingana to overthrow him. Mpandi promised to pay all the 19,300 cattle Dingana owed as long as the Boers supported him militarily, and he also ceded the bay at St. Lucia to the Boers, who believed it could be used as their port on the northern Zululand coast. Mpande promised he wouldn't take any military action in Zululand without the Volksrat's consent, and that's how matters remained until the new year in 1840. Meanwhile, in December 1839, Captain Jervis received his marching orders, despite his protestations that things were not right in Natal. Lord Napier wanted the British garrison to depart, and depart they did on Christmas Eve 1839, taking the flat-bottomed Mazeppa boat out over the infamous sandbar to deeper water, in which the brig called Vectus waited. Just out of interest, Vectus means lever, as in a metal bar. And thus, Jervis and his men sailed away from Fort Victoria and Port Natal, while on the beach near where Addington Hospital is today, the Boers fired shots of good riddance.
Then they hoisted their new flag of the Republic Natalia, a flag of two colours, red above and blue below, overlaid by a white triangle, its base on the outer edge of the flag, its apex in the middle pointing towards the pole. With the hated British gone, the Boers and Mpande were ready to mount their joint campaign against Tengana. What happened next is for next episode. Please head off to the website desmondlatham.blog where I'm going to load an update about this episode. You can email me messages from there or direct message me on x at deslatham. Until next, salayat.